This is the Israel Connection coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. This is my last program for 2023 and it promises to be a bumper. To begin with today, I'm speaking with Rahil Raza from Canada. Rahil is President of the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow, author of the book Their Jihad, Not My Jihad, and is an award-winning journalist, public speaker and activist for human rights. She is recipient of Canada's Sesky Centennial Commemorative Medal for Exceptional Contributions to Canada, Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for Service to Canada and the Museum of Tolerance Medal of Valour. Most importantly, she is on the steering committee of Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism that on October the 7th strongly and unreservedly condemned the murderous attack on Israel by the terrorist organisation Hamas. Rahil Razad to the Israel Connection. I'm delighted to welcome Rahil Razad to the Israel Connection. Very great pleasure indeed to have you on the show, Rahil. Thank you so much for having me. You're the president of an organisation called Muslims Facing Tomorrow. Could you please tell us about uh, the mission and objectives of your organisation? Yes. Well, I'm involved in two organizations. I'm president of Muslims Facing Tomorrow. Uh, But more importantly and more relevant, I am also a board member of the Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism. Right. So we founded Muslims Facing Tomorrow as a way to get Canadian Muslims to be more engaged in um, what is happening in Canada, to move themselves from the 7th century into the uh, 20th century and to learn to adjust their Islamic tenets and their lives to a liberal small l uh, democracy and to value the values of uh, freedom, uh, freedom of speech, liberal values. And so that is what we do with Muslims Facing Tomorrow. That is our work within the Muslim communities, because it's important. And then with the Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism, we have been fighting anti-Semitism for a long time. It's rife in uh, Muslim communities and other communities, but because I happen to be a Muslim, we battle the scourge of anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. And after October 7th, I have been doing something every single day with regards to anti-Semitism. So when were these organizations formed, Rahil? Muslims Facing Tomorrow is about 10 years old. And the Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism is about uh, three years old. Do you face opposition from uh, Muslims in in Canada to the initiatives that you've taken? Of course, if I didn't face opposition, I didn't. Uh, I wouldn't know that I'm succeeding, <laughs> but uh, in, in reaching out. But at the same time, there are also a lot of Muslims who come on board uh, once we have discussion and debate, and we talk to them, and when we use logic and reasoning, they do come on board. Uh, For example, our board on the Council of Muslims Facing Anti-Semitism is entirely Muslim. We wanted this to be a Muslim organization speaking out against Jew hatred. And so it's global. 
We have members from across the board, from the United States, uh, UK, uh, Europe, Canada, of course, but they're all Muslim. Okay. We're experiencing in Australia an almost total animus toward Israel and by default the Jewish community from Muslims in Australia. And I shared with you a public statement of support in solidarity with all advocates for Palestine from the organisation Alliance of Australian Muslims. In Australia, it has been impossible for me to find Muslims who will speak out unreservedly in support of Israel. I tried to find someone after October 7. I contacted uh, the founder of Project Rosanna, uh, which is uh, an organisation that works together with people in, uh, in Israel, Palestinians and, and so forth. I spoke to a representative of the Ahmadiyya uh, Muslim community, who are more liberal-minded than uh, many other uh, Muslims. Yes. Uh, but what is the situation like uh, in, in Canada? Of course, it's a bit different because your organisation exists. But I just wanted to, to get it out It is a bit really, different. It's very, different, yes, very difficult it, here. Uh, yes, I, I understand that the situation in Australia is very challenging. It is also challenging in Canada. Uh, don't get me wrong, we do exist as an organisation. But uh, trying to reach out to the Muslim mindset has been more and more challenging, especially because of the narrative that is put out there. Basically, if, if I speak about it, it's very simple. Anyone who does not side with evil on this planet, anyone, they have to condemn Hamas for their October 7th attack. It was heinous, it was cowardly, it was a barbaric attack on Israeli civilians. It just makes sense, it's logical, but of course, what we see is that with funding from Iran and some other countries, the, uh, the combination of the Muslim Brotherhood, the narrative that is being put out there, which is being brought in by the media, by some media, most media, I would say, is that this is a war that Israel has initiated against the Palestinians, which is, of course, not the case. This is a war that Hamas started, and it is a war that Hamas initiated against Israeli civilians. So the narrative on the other side is very powerful. It's very strong. It's all over social media. It's all over mainstream media that tilts towards uh, this anti-Israel bias. Uh, as you know, the United Nations also has its own anti-Israel bias. And so people buy into that. And the Muslim community, by and large, also does. But there are people who, once we talk to them, do understand uh, that there is another side to, to this narrative. In this vein, you shared an article with me published by the media outlet True North in Canada titled one out of six Muslim organizations responded when asked to denounce Hamas. Of course, yes. the only one that, uh, that that did so. Yes, that is true. We are the only organization, which is the Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism, that put out a statement on October 7th, and I sent you a copy of the statement yes. as well. Uh, the others uh, refrained. We had in our statement quotes uh, from our board members and uh, that was out and it's up on our website. And we have stood steadfastly by Israel in this conflict, by supporting the community, by going to 
businesses that had been vandalized and uh, supporting them and also showing the Jewish community at large that there are some Muslims like us who will support them. And we have a team at CMAA uh, which goes out together to these events. And there is a lot of ruckus and vandalization and rallies which are very, very prone to violence on our streets. Uh, almost every day there is, an, uh, there is a rally. And that's something that is of great concern to us because no matter what is happening out there and wherever it is happening, we don't want to see hate on our streets. So when they go around chanting uh, from the river to the sea, uh, we know what that means. Which river and which sea are we talking about and what's in between is Israel and the Jews. So the Jew hatred is rampant. I mean, in a free country uh, like Canada, a democracy, of course, everyone has a right to protest, but they don't have a right to perpetuate hate. And that's something which I feel that our government has not been harsh enough to pick up these vandals from the streets. And the Jewish community is very, very scared. They're worried, and rightly so. The students are being abused in universities and in schools. And so it's not a situation that is in any way positive. Yeah, so all very, all very true indeed. I've come across an article. Uh, this uh, actually was written by um, a Muslim in, uh, in Argentina. And he contends that the conflict in the Middle East is not a war between Muslims and Jews. The leaders of the um, pro-Palestinian movement in Australia are very much like to make this dispute one about occupation, one about uh, dispute over, over land, over the fact that the Palestinians don't have uh, a state, etc., uh, etc. Et but there's uh, no um, willingness to look at this actually being a, a dispute along religious lines. And it, the way it's uh, shaped in Australia with all Muslims essentially aligning in opposition to what Israel is doing, how can one not see this as being... Uh, a conflict uh, that's breaking out between Muslims and Jews. Your writer is absolutely right. It is not a religious war, but they would like to make it one. They the, Again, this is where the narrative has changed. What started off with an, with an attack by Hamas on Israel very soon turned into an Israel-Palestinian Israel conflict. And from there, it turned into a Muslim-Jewish conflict. Because it is their convenience, they use religiosity as a tool to empower Muslims to buy into this narrative by telling them that this is their religious duty, which it is not. It's not, in, in, in my opinion, it's not even about the land. This is about pure Jew hatred. They don't want uh, a peace treaty. They don't want to settle this because they want to eliminate Jews and the land of Israel. And so that's very clear because it's in the Hamas charter. This is not my opinion. Mm. They've made it very clear that this is what their aim is. So when we see people, ordinary citizens on the street, Muslims and non-Muslims chanting, uh, ceasefire now, ceasefire now, no. It's not ceasefire now. What we need is for them to release the hostages now and to lay down their arms and surrender. And only then there will be a ceasefire. You know, and I often point out to people that on October 6th, there was a ceasefire and it was broken on October 7th by Hamas. 
the way that Hamas treats its own people, if they really cared about the Palestinians, then when Israel had left Gaza, people said that this could have been turned, it could have been another Singapore, because the infrastructure at that time was so great. But they just piled on all the weaponry, uh, supported, of course, by Iran and all the money that flowed in, that was put towards weapons and tunnels. And uh, it, there was never any urgent need to help the people and to help build the infrastructure. So we know that anybody who can can reason and anyone who has logic and who can can look at the situation from both sides without this gut-wrenching hate that they have in their hearts and minds, they can see the true picture. But they are brainwashed and they're given this religiosity uh, to this issue. And so they fall into the trap of buying into the other narrative. I often tell my uh, Jewish uh, friends and the people that we work with that our narrative needs to be louder than the other side. But it's difficult with social media. As you know, people pick up their news from uh, whatever they, they read on social media. And the, the public relationing efforts of the other side of Hamas are in billions. Yeah, it's very, very difficult indeed uh, with the numbers that uh, we're, we're facing, that we're confronting. You wrote an article 15 years ago, titled Islamophobia used too often to stifle debate or criticism. We have seen in Australia many of our political leaders opposing the rampant rise in anti-Semitism, but at the same time, they're citing concerns about Islamophobia. We have an Islamophobia register in Australia, driven by uh, a woman, Dr. Susan Carland, who's an Australian academic author and television presenter, and she uh, doesn't uh, really expose uh, particular incidents in, uh, in that register that suggests there is a major problem with Islamophobia, but yet we hear about uh, figures, uh, huge increases of uh, a few hundred percent in Islamophobia. Would you say that uh, Islamophobia is being weaponized unduly? I do believe that the term Islamophobia is being weaponized, and I also understand that Islamophobia is a term that was created after 9-11 by the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood to quell all discussion and debate about Islam and Muslims. And the situation is exactly the same in Canada. People are scared to speak out so because they're afraid they'll be called Islamophobes or racists or bigots. And some of our leaders, whenever they talk about anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism, which has been huge since October 7th, uh, they collate Islamophobia or include it in the same sentence as, th as though the two were one and the same thing. Now, it's very clear to me that they are not the same thing. Anti-Semitism has been institutionalized for hundreds of years. And it is, again, it, it's Jew hatred. And the, the purpose behind is to get rid of the Jews. There is, of course, bigotry, racism against every community including Muslims, and that must be condemned. But according to statistics that have been put out by our police force, the rise in anti-Semitic incidents far outweighs the rise of incidents of racism against Muslims. But yes, political correctness, the woke culture just makes it um, possible for our political leaders, because why they want votes, and so they, every time they talk about anti-Semitism, they say, but also 
Islamophobia. They are two entirely separate things. Yeah, when I was referring to uh, Dr. Susan Carland, uh, who happens to be the wife of a very uh, popular presenter here, Walid Ali, who you might have uh, heard of, she's produced a report titled The War of Words, Preliminary Media Analysis of the 2023 Israel-Gaza War, uh, under the auspices of this Islamophobia Register in Australia. One interesting thing is that uh, she classifies uh, anti-Palestinian uh, racism, or she calls it racism, as a specific type of Islamophobia. So it seems like uh, uh, she sees that it's valid that uh, you uh, call out the opposition to uh, the Palestinian actions that are taking place, the pro-Palestinian protests and so forth, as a type of Islamophobia, which seems really far-fetched. And in, in this regard, she uh, includes an incident where a Palestinian Christian boy in Sydney who was called names, for example, terrorist, was counted as being Islamophobic. Well, yes, this is what this whole registry does. And we have one in Canada as well. Uh, there is a woman who has been appointed as the head of it. And basically what they are saying is that anytime you criticize any actions of uh, the people, which is very naive to say the least, when you have uh, Hamas uh, supporters uh, chanting death to the Jews, it, then then what do we call it? Judophobia? There isn't a term for that. You know, anti-Semitism seems to have been normalized, which is what they wanted all along. What you have to also understand, David, is that I've been, we, my organization, and we have been in this battle for far longer than October 7th. We have been putting out the red flags and have been given, giving warnings since 9-11 and even before. And what happened was that they called us fear mongers and hate mongers for, for pointing this out, that there is a larger agenda. What we are talking about is an ideology, an ideology of hate, and it has to be fought at the root. But this whole idea of putting out uh, the Islamophobia fear stops people from speaking out. Canadians are very peace-loving by nature, and they get intimidated, and they're afraid to speak out. So it falls upon us as Muslims to take the charge and to speak out about these things, because you know what can they do? As Muslims call us Islamophobes, they do try, of course. But, you know, we have the right to speak out because the problem is within the minds, within the ideology, and it has to be fought at an ideological level. Yes. With Australia and uh, Canada, there's uh, certain uh, close uh, cooperation. Uh, last week, we saw Australia join uh, with Canada and New Zealand in issuing a combined statement at the time that the United Nations General Assembly taking a vote supporting a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. What do yes. you make of that initiative, which inter alia declared that the price of defeating Hamas cannot be the continuous suffering of all Palestinian civilians? And a few well, other remarks. Yes, this is very troubling and very concerning, and there has been a lot of lot of outpouring of resentment about this. What they should have said is, yes, ceasefire, but with only with the condition that they surrender, put down their arms, and release the hostages now. It's very unfortunate that in all the dialogue and in everything that's out there, they very quickly forget the hostages. It's as though that that never happened. And now we have footage that has come out of the women being raped. 
Where are the women's organizations who rallied for all the causes? I mean, it's me too, unless you're a Jew. Where are, are the women's organizations, the so-called feminists, speaking about the assault on women and using rape as a tool of terror, using rape as a tool of war? Uh, they are even denying that this happened. And this is absolutely appallingly unacceptable. I mean, as a women's rights activist myself, I would be the first one to stand up and say that we have to support our Jewish sisters and what happened and make sure that this never happens again. This is 2023 and rape is being used as a weapon of war. And this is all unfolding now, but they are trying to cover up the narrative to talk about everything else except that Hamas started the war. There's no doubt about that. We can't allow that narrative to change. Uh, the underlying factor is anti-Semitism, which is growing by by leaps and bounds. Rape and assault were used, but the vo their voices have been silenced. So we have to make sure that the narrative remains where it is. They keep deflecting from the main cause. If we keep the main cause front and center, which is that Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, and with great brutality, you know, there are wars in the world. We've, I mean, I'm old enough to have lived through and seen many conflicts, uh, political conflicts. But the kind of brutality and the vengeance with which Hamas waged this attack is something that is inhuman. It's beyond words. There was a screening here of the footage that was taken from the body cams of the Hamas terrorists. So it's undeniable, you know, and the the gloating and the celebration that they showed while bodies of the um, hostages were being dragged through the streets. It's not human at any level. So how can any human being justify that? I mean, that is my question as well. I mean, I'm a mother and a grandmother. I can't imagine how anyone would accept such brutality and not condemn it. That is the first thing that everyone has to do is condemn what Hamas did, condemn that brutality, acknowledge that it took place, and then make sure that the narrative doesn't change. Yeah, that uh, is very clear cut. We hear this uh, acceptance uh, or agreement that Hamas committed an atrocity, but then they uh, they uh, they go into the uh, contextualizing of this uh, um, that this is all uh, coming about as a result of uh, the uh, oppression of Palestinians for some say 50, uh, uh, 56 years, um, uh, some say uh, seventy five years. Uh, of course, which uh, indicates uh, that Israel shouldn't have been formed in the first place. This is um, beyond beyond the pale, really, when one hears uh, these types of statements. What is your position? Do you, do you think that Israel should be continuing in its mission to uh, eliminate Hamas, despite the fact that we're seeing this uh, un unfortunate uh, killing of uh, supposedly innocent Palestinian civilians? Well... First of all, I want to uh, comment on what you just said, that these terms, these are now buzzwords, you know, colonization, oppressor, contextualize. And again, these are all words that are used to deflect from the real issue. People go, keep going back in history. 
This conflict between Israel and Palestinians has been ongoing for 70 years now. It's something that they will resolve between themselves only when Hamas is eliminated because their purpose is to to eradicate Jews and Israel. It's on, in their Hamas charter. So how can there be a peace, peace or a ceasefire unless they are uh, absolutely removed from, from where they are. And it's not as though there weren't opportunities to have peace deals. Palestinians were offered a peace deal five times. They walked away from it because they don't want peace. It's very clear that that's not what they want. They don't want peace. What they want is for Jews and Israel to be eradicated, to be eliminated. And so that is what their chant is all about. You know, they justify by saying that's not what it means. But to any sane person, we know what it means. It's been going on for so long. There have been opportunities when they could have settled, but they don't want. So the only way that th that this issue will be settled is if Hamas surrenders, give us, gives up their weapons, releases their hostages, and then they can sit around a table and they can discuss ways in which a settlement can take place, whatever it is that they, they they come to that conclusion. And it's unfortunate that world leaders and, you know, especially uh, world, world leaders from countries which have an absolutely appalling human rights record for their own citizens. And that was my latest uh, article, which is Selective Muslim Rage About Israel. You know, you have countries which have an appalling human rights record. They have been oppressing their own citizens, yet they'll come out on the street to support Hamas. I mean, it is absolutely hypocritical, but the hypocrisy shows right through. I've been to Israel 14 times. I know it's not an apartheid state. I know I have met people, Arabs who live there and would not like to live anywhere else except live there. Uh, they have they have now come out. The Bedouins have started speaking out, uh, you know, they are saying that this is where they want to live. This is where they have freedom. This is where they find democracy. This is where they have freedom of choice. They have freedom of voice. And so it is a very diverse country, which has its own problems like any other country. But they have a right to exist and they have a right to defend themselves. No one will say this. You've said... Uh further on uh, the way that uh, things should shape up, that uh, defeating Hamas would be a win for the Muslim world. This is what you wrote yes. uh, for the National Post. You're saying that Hamas's public relations machine has somewhat succeeded in crafting a narrative into a sympathetic one of resistance. The conflict is now playing out in Western countries with huge pro-Palestinian rallies that terrorise small businesses as well as Jewish students on university campuses. So this is this... Um, and unfortunate situation we find that uh, Hamas has been uh, taken on board by uh, by by the Muslim world. But really, what we should see is that Hamas should be eliminated, and that would be in the interest, you say, of the Muslim world. Of course, it would be. You see, I'm an observant, practicing Muslim. But I, what Hamas is doing in the name of my faith, I don't accept that at all. They are a cult. What they're doing is absolutely directly against the, the message of Islam and what we learn in the Quran. And so how can the Muslim world accept what they are doing? The Muslim world should unanimously, especially organizations like the Organization of Islamic Conference, the OIC, who have a huge uh, clout at the United Nations, 
they should unitedly say we condemn and reject Hamas and then they can have a conversation about the situation of the Palestinians of course one's heart you know the, the heart bleeds about innocent people uh, women and children being harmed and being destroyed but who is doing that it's Hamas who is doing that so before any conversation can take place, there has to be a unilateral condemnation of Hamas. And they have to be empowered to surrender, put down their arms and release the hostages. It's only then the second level of conversation can begin. But as you see, and as you know, everybody starts the conversation with Israel as though Israel is the one who perpetuated the attack when it's the other way around. I mean, the, the aggressor has now become the victim. Yes, it's just upside down. Uh, yes. Things, things are going on. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, very uh, hard to believe because it so defies logic. You, you believe that Hamas destroyed the reputation of Islam by attributing its actions to religion. What do you say to those who, who point a critical finger at, uh, at Islam generally, at ordering Muslims for following a faith which... Some say uh, at its uh, at its uh, core, um, there are pedagogical uh, pedagogical elements at the core of Islam that make Islam prone to this sort of radicalization and fanaticism that we're witnessing. Well, I believe that every religion, it's an idea, it's open to criticism and people have an absolute right to criticize. And because debate and discussion has been forbidden in Islam to the extent that people are not allowed to say anything, we don't have that dialogue. Every faith has its weaknesses, and so does Islam, and it is open to that criticism, but we should have the ability to sit and talk about it. And people like us who are well-read and logical and reasoned, will look at it to say that there's some issues that need to be parked in the seventh century. We are now in the 20th century. Let's move forward in a more compassionate, liberal way. We don't have to practice the practices of the tribal warriors of the 7th century when the only way they knew how to deal with each other was to kill each other or behead each other. What we see Hamas doing is exactly that. They're following those practices. It is very much a weakness in the followers and then the way that they are following it because they have totally deflected from the spiritual message of the faith which is far more important than what they have taken instead of taking it metaphorically they have taken it literally and they are misusing religion for their own purpose you have to also understand that in large parts of the muslim world especially in third world countries the masses are illiterate you know they don't read and understand for themselves they let the mullah, who may be the, the most uh, illiterate person in the village, they let the mullah tell them of what to believe and what to do. It's not that they go back and study. It's important for us to have that the ability to be able to, to read and understand and not take everything by its literal value. Now, Judaism and Christianity have evolved to an extent where they have reformed themselves to the point where they can discuss and debate, talk about reform. Um, Muslims, unfortunately, have not come to that level because there is no debate and discussion. And if anyone even suggests the idea of reform, and by the way, I'm also part of a very outgoing group called the Muslim Reform Movement, which is headed by Dr. Zudi Jasser in the United States. And we talk about reform. 
you know, we talk about living in the 21st century and adapting to Western culture because we have chosen to make this our home. And there are ways in which that can be done. You said this is all about politics, not the political rights of Muslims or the Palestinians. You've said yes, it is all about politics. It is all about politics. It's all about the masses. It's all about votes. And this is why our leaders uh, don't want to speak out. They don't want to shake the status quo. Yeah, support uh, for the Palestinian cause comes from a fear that if Israel is allowed to exist in peace and security, its democratic values will eventually permeate the region. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, this is what the leaders of these monarchies and dictatorships are dreading. Yes, and uh, absolutely the Palestinians need to live in peace, but they can only live in peace when they themselves condemn people like Hamas and their leadership who are not allowing them to live in peace. There is more harm that has been done to them by their by their own leadership than anyone on the outside. So just to sum up, uh, Rahil, do you think it's possible for the practitioners of Islam to accept Judaism and there not to be this perpetual state of conflict? that we've seen for centuries that is largely uh, driving this animus between uh, uh, Muslims and Jews around the world? From a religious point of view, from an Islamic point of view, you can only be Muslim if you do accept Judaism, because in the Quran, which is our holy book, we read that they are people of the book, Jews, Christians and Muslims. They are all the children of Abraham. They're people of the book. And what Muslims need to understand is if they want respect, in this world today, they have to give the same respect to others. So absolutely, there is no reason why they should not and cannot accept Judaism. They must. And I, I should tell you also that the Quran very explicit, explicitly states that this is the land of the Jews. And I have quoted this time and again, chapter and verse, because it is important. But as I said before, Muslims generally don't read for themselves. They don't reason. And therefore, they very easily, very gullibly fall into the trap of people who are hate-mongering, who tell them that this is not correct. I mean, they have the same an- same animus against Christians. In Muslim many Muslim-majority countries, Christians are being persecuted for exactly the same reason, but this is not at all acceptable for a person who is practicing Islam the way it should be. It's really been very uh, refreshing indeed to be speaking with you today, Rafael, and hearing the views that that you have, I think, which uh, are are very enlightened. And I uh, would hope that they uh, spread uh, widely and they affect the way that uh, people think about What's going on? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your having me and thank you very much. I've been speaking with Rahil Raza, who was the president of the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow and on the steering committee of the Council of Muslims Against Anti Semitism. Canada, like Australia, considers itself to be open and welcoming to ethno cultural and religious diversity. Not all Canadians, though, see multiculturalism as an asset, and this change is exacerbated by the ongoing conflict between two of the country's most discriminated communities. All this is taking place in a context where Canada's capacity to welcome immigrant populations is being questioned. According to a poll published on November the 29th, more than 67% of the population believes that there will be tensions between communities, principally because of the federal government's immigration threshold, which is considered excessive. The government is still aiming to welcome more than 500,000 immigrants a year over the next few years. 
Like Australia, the Jewish community in Canada has been the group most frequently targeted by hate crimes and there has been a significant increase in reports made to the police. Speaking with Rahil Raza, the issue of Islamophobia, I brought up uh, in, in my discussion with her and we heard her disdain for the current exploitation of Islamophobia by Muslims for cynical political purposes. I reached out to academic Dr. Susan Carland, who has authored a report titled A War of Words, Preliminary Media Analysis, to discuss the report and the endeavours of those behind the Islamophobia registry in Australia. Unsurprisingly, the response has been a deathly, ungracious silence, with no one apparently willing to stand up and justify what they do. The report I mentioned only examined Instagram posts made from the ABC News, The Australian, The Daily Telegraph, Nine News, News.com.au and The Daily AUS between October the 7th, 2023 and November the 7th, concluding that most of these media outlets failed to meet minimum standards of humanising Palestinians in their posts about Israel-Gaza and used language that was not balanced in favour of the Palestinian side. The report is mixed. The report is mired in semantics that are intended to convey the, the message that the media is not giving the Palestinians a fair go, which to anyone observing what is going on is plainly ludicrous. The press release accompanying the report claims anti-Palestinianism is racism and lumps it into the Islamophobia basket. As a corollary, anti-Zionism would then have to be considered to be racism and therefore anti-Semitism. But that is what most or many pro-Palestinians hypocritically refuse to accept. A montage of Israel images produced in the wake of October the 7th has turned the video of Sydney-based Jewish band Jatni's debut song into an internet sensation. The video received more than 350,000 views on Instagram in its first week. The release of Chutney's cover of the Hebrew pop anthem Kama At Yafa was originally slotted for early next year. The band decided to bring it forward to send a message of support to Israelis. Chutney's band leader and violinist Ben Adler says the song is intended as a gift from diaspora Jews to Israelis and aims to contribute to the war effort by boosting morale and expressing solidarity. When the war broke out, we were reading over the translation again, and we, re- and we realized that the lyrics were highly pertinent, Adler explained. Kama at Yafar means how she is so beautiful. Let's hear it.
stand with Israel. Our light will shine until the darkness is defeated. Yisachar is a national security researcher and team lead in the Israeli high-tech industry, leading the research department of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, also known as Habishonistim. They comprise a group of 16,000 reserve officers and operatives from all branches of the Israeli security forces dedicated to guiding the narrative of Israel's national security needs and ensuring that Israel's security in the homeland of the Jewish people is never taken for granted. At the core of the IDSF lies the belief that Israel's security must be anchored in its ability to protect itself by itself while actively thwarting threats to its safety. The IDSF has been conducting daily briefings on the war in Gaza and listeners who would like to view the recordings of these daily war briefings should enter IDSF war briefings into the search field of the internet browser. A couple of days ago, Or Issachar shared his idea of what might happen the day after Hamas is defeated. Thank you. So uh, we were asked today to go over uh, scenarios for the day after in Gaza and... um, I'd like to take you maybe to a dilemma. Okay, so the question is what to do with the Gaza in the day after, I think really depends on uh, what kind of risks you're willing to take. And uh, number two, what lessons you already learned um, in the past. And I think um, many times we, of- we often hear the ideas that simply tell us go back to your comfort zone, you know, that to fall back to the familiar place where you know that it, it is already... You know, it's bad enough, but um, it's a, it's um well, let, let's just say it's a familiar uh, bad. It's not a new bad. What do I mean by that? Um, let me just try to explain it to you in, in with other terms. Uh, I don't know if you know, but I'm also a pianist. And um, my new piano teacher 10 years ago, he told me, well, I, in one of our first lessons, he said, well, he noticed how I raise my shoulders every time I make, you know, some, reach, you know, some, some sort of a difficult passage. And it, it really radiates stress, you know, the body does that and it doesn't help you play in any way, but that's a habit. And 
at one point, I prefer to preserve the bad habits than learning new habits that I'm not familiar with. And he said, well, sometimes we know our bad habits. We're falling in love with them even because we the, the better habits are unfamiliar. But if you learn and do what I tell you, um, I'll assure you that you'll play much better. You'll get rid of a lot of unnecessary stress and so on. And that's what I did. And uh, it worked like magic. But the point is that our bad habits are not always the answer. And what I mean by that is going back to past solutions, such as the Palestinian Authority in Gaza. Uh, that's what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make. Uh, is not going to take us anywhere, even though it's familiar. Now, let me uh, lay down three scenarios for you that uh, I think could be useful. So this is the Gaza Strip. Let's imagine three scenarios for the day after in Gaza. Scenario number one, uh, and I'm, again, the day after, as General Vivi always says, it really depends on our accomplishments in the battlefield. When we talk about the day after in Gaza, it's only after, which means after Israel, once Israel accomplishes its goals, number one, destroying Hamas, number two, releasing the hostages. Then we talk, we can talk about the day after. So scenario number one is that Israel has full control over the Gaza Strip, basically occupy it, uh, has full exercises full control over it. It manages Gaza Strip, the Gaza Strip like in the civil administration days before the Oslo Accords, before 1993, where you had an, a military officer that is working with, uh, I don't know, local mayors and, and, and etc. and um, has to authorize every construction and every movement, etc. Really, Israel exercises both civil and, and security control over the Gaza Strip. And it's basically the sovereign. I wouldn't recommend that. It's probably not going to take us Israel anywhere, both in the international level and the political level. We are already dealing with tough questions in Judea and Samaria as to the kind of military control that they, Israel exercises both on Jews and Arabs. I got to tell you, even Israeli citizens of Judea and Samaria, in, in many cases, in many aspects, have to go through military procedures. So that wouldn't be, you know, a long-term solution, you know, a military Control is only is always a, a temporary solution. So scenario number number two is obviously bringing the Palestinian Authority back to Gaza. I have to tell you that uh, this is really the main point that I'd like to rebuttal because I have read a lot of publications that the international community already recognizes the Palestinian Authority as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. They already signed agreements with Israel. They're already a familiar actor, and they got a big advantage because. The Biden administration today, we got, I got, a, you know, the, the United States government, basically, what the U.S. is telling Israel is that we are encouraging a solution where a revitalized Palestinian authority, so-called revitalized Palestinian authority, will be given the keys to Gaza. While appreciative of all, everything the United States does for Israel, it, it does, it's not one can chew a gum and walk in the same time. So, of course, the U.S. is a key strategic ally to Israel, but at the same time, it is wrong about the Palestinian Authority. It is not the solution to Gaza. And I'll, I'll tell you very, very briefly why. Uh, we published a paper uh, that Moshe, I'm probably, I think we probably shared with our audience in the past already, this paper over here, that basically asked the question why uh, the Palestinian Authority cannot govern, govern Gaza. We really lay out here everything you need to know. The, the main point is, one, Palestinian Authority is no friend of Israel. It is strategic threat. It is not a friend. In the famous phrase that there is no partner, there is no partner. Because Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority are now active, host, actively hostile toward Israel by doing three things. First of all, they radicalize the population. They have 
entire education programs, like you see here on the map, this is so-called the map of Palestine, the entire state of Israel, including Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa. This is from a, tech, a Palestinian textbook. On the left side, you see the propaganda cartoons. I'm sure you've seen them already in one of my previous uh, presentations uh, by Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, inciting the population to murder Jews, etc. So they remain committed to the armed struggle. They're not a peace actor. Number two, the PA pays terrorists. Okay, I'm sure you're familiar with Pay for Slay, the Taylor Force Act. Basically, if you murder a Jew and you enter into Israeli prison, you and you get a monthly stipend that simply get paid more and more as long as time goes by. So, for example, this is how that's the kind of salary, almost four thousand dollars a month. Palestinian terrorists that serves over thirty years and above is being paid, as opposed to, for example, Palestinian teachers, engineers, etc. So they're not incentivizing Palestinians to have proper occupations, such as being uh, uh, teachers and, and engineers, but to be terrorists. Needless to say, terrorists who are killed in action, are their families get the stipends as well. And number three, the PA is leading the delegitimization campaign against Israel around the world. Okay? Uh, the BDS, protesting campuses you see in the United States, all the BDS activity, where they sue Israel in The Hague, in the ICC, all this is led by the Palestinian Authority. So every time you see, for example, like a BDS or anti-Israel or free Palestine march, there is a big chance the Palestinian Authority is behind it with a vast network of organizations that it established back almost 30 years ago. But you also see how the Palestinian Authority reacted to October 7. I'll just touch upon two brief anecdotes that might help you. One is that really Fatah members participated in the October 7 attacks. They even took pride in it. The yellow scarf indicates Fatah, Mahmoud Abbas, right, the Palestinian Authority, as opposed to a green scarf that indicates Hamas. So they pride themselves for taking part in the October 7 attacks. And if that wasn't bad enough, PA officials, including Mahmoud Abbas, the president, Mohammed Ashtaya, the prime minister, all these people, as well as prominent politicians, openly support Hamas, encourage Hamas, say they should be part of the future government alongside the Palestinian Authority. They say that they are praiseworthy and they actually are twilights and stars in the sky of the Palestinian struggle. And some of officials say we should do the same in Judea and Samaria, so-called the West Bank. That's what the PA is saying. So it's true that Israel is cooperating with it, but I don't think this is a responsible actor for Gaza. So no Palestinian authority and no Israeli military control. Makken, as we say in Hebrew, what should we do? I'll, I'll let you into a secret. Israel has been very, very good at saying what we should not do as opposed to what we should do. If I may, let's take a minute and then we we'll open up to questions to envision what should happen in Gaza. First of all, the entire Gaza Strip should be, the IDF, Israel, should have full military freedom of operation. We should be able to get into every house, arrest every suspect, exactly like we're doing in Nablus and in Ramallah today. This is how we prevent all of these, all of these uh, Hamas uh, terror nests from metastasizing. Now, we haven't done that in Gaza for 20 years. This is exactly why we had a, like an empire of terrorism over there. After we have full military freedom of operation, we got to make sure that no weapons are smuggled into Gaza. The vast network of tunnels in the Rafah crossing, this, what they call a Philadelphia route to the Gaza-Egypt border, is teeming with underground tunnels. And when you say a tunnel, it's not just a narrow underground passage. These are 
underground cities where trucks even can drive through, even tracks with like sort of train-like deliveries. So all these things must be stopped by the IDF permanently. And then what I envision, what we envision is to have an international directorate with the participation of Israel, the United States, even pragmatic Arab countries like Saudi Arabia that could open up to peace normalization as part of the package, participating in the future of Gaza. The directorate will run the reconstruction efforts. It will run the international money flowing into Gaza that makes sure it goes to education and to building up power plants and all these things and not to terrorism and will manage and every Palestinian mayor that is not Hamas nor, nor Fatah Palestinian mayors will work with that directorate. And this is a probably an, a good interim solution. But again, as I said, I don't think we should talk about solution as much as we should talk about arrangements. Solution would mean that you know, Palestinians shake hands with Israelis and say we recognize your right to exist in the state of Israel as the Jewish state. Since it's not going to happen anytime soon, I think we should talk about arrangements. And most of all, we should talk about education denazify, denazification of the Gaza Strip from all UN and Hamas, I'm not saying it lightly, but UN and Hamas anti-Semitic propaganda in the schools, in the manuals, they should all be thrown to the trash bin. Look what the United Arab Emirates did, the UAE, Dubai, what they did in their education system, it's simply inspiring and they can definitely be part of the future of Gaza as well. And I believe we should open up to questions. In, in terms of the IDF freedom of operation in Judea and Samaria, uh, General Avivi has shared with us many a times that it's specifically the Jewish towns and cities in Judea and Samaria that allows the IDF to have right. the freedom of movement in the region. So in terms of Gaza, if, if moving forward there is going to be uh, some level of operational capacity in Gaza, does that necessitate Jewish towns being there, or is it possible to be able to have a military control, keep terrorism down without reestablishing the Jewish settlements in Gaza? So maybe Moshe, I'll address this. All talked about the need for uh, freedom of operation of the IDF in the Gaza Strip, but there is also the need to control the Egyptian border where all the weapons and know-how uh, and the capabilities are coming into the Gaza Strip in huge amounts. And it's not just about controlling the border itself. You need to control a, a whole area, let's say Rafah. Controlling an area like that and also maintaining a freedom of operation forever. This is something that if you only base it on military, the day will come when uh, questions will be raised. Why is Israel, let's say, in the words of the world, occupying Gaza? The problem with areas where you don't have uh, Jewish towns, uh, on one hand, is really it, it makes it more difficult to control, like controlling the Egyptian border without having Gush Katif. Now, Gush Katif was not built by the right. Gush Katif was built by the left. It was built by uh, Igal Alon. It was built exactly because they knew that you cannot control the Egyptian border for long without massive, massive presence of uh, Jews in the area that helped control this border. The same goes, uh, was done 
by the left in, in the Sinai Peninsula. Where did we put all our towns in the Sinai Peninsula? We put them in the Sinai, but in front of Gaza, in a way that keeps Gaza disconnected, not to bring all this terror into Gaza. This Yamit, as a city, was just south of Gaza. This logic was existing in Israel already in the 60s. And really, it's not supposed to change. It's the same logic. So I don't think that talking about Israeli settlements in Gaza now, at the moment, in the middle of the war, with our soldiers fighting there, or with the Biden administration, it's the right uh, discussion now. But in the long term, looking at what is needed to secure Israel for generations to come, as we always speak about in IDSF, this is a serious discussion. And this discussion was done in the 60s. And also after we handed Sinai, we understood that we need these towns inside uh, Gaza. I must say, we don't know what will happen in Gaza, talking about uh, today, people say, wow, you have 2 million Palestinians in Gaza, how can we put Jews there as well? So I've been playing part of the audio from a daily war briefing from the IDSF, the Israel Defence and Security Forum. You were listening to Or Yisakar at the beginning, who leads the research department at the IDSF, and you would have also heard Brigadier General Amir Vivi at the end speaking he is the convener of these war briefings coming from the IDSF. This has been my last program for 2023. I want to wish all my listeners a happy and healthy new year. Most of all, I would like to express my hope that the war in Gaza ends soon with the elimination of Hamas and a brighter future emerges from the ashes for Israel. May the Palestinians decide to come to the table to openly and sincerely seek a resolution of the conflict that so many of them have been too keen to perpetuate. Until next year, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.